Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Education Portal Roundtable. You are here with myself, Martin, and Mackenzie. And this month's topic is hypertrophy. So, Martin, this is right up your alley. Are you currently doing a PhD uh, on a specific topic related to this area? So, kick us off with, I guess, the physiology of how muscle grows. Give the guys a breakdown of what's involved when we want to get jacked. Yeah, for sure. So I guess it's probably a good idea to first define the term hypertrophy because it's not just relevant to muscle. So hypertrophy in physiology refers to the enlargement of a cell generally due to the increase uh, in its contents. And so the cell gets larger and therefore the tissue uh, will also get larger. So in our context, we're speaking about skeletal muscle hypertrophy. So skeletal muscle being that contractile tissue that we obviously use when we are resistance training and hypertrophy is referring to the increase in the size of muscle cells uh, or muscle fibers so muscle cells muscle fibers those terms can be used interchangeably it's these muscle fibers that make up skeletal muscle tissue right and there are thousands and thousands of muscle fibers in a given uh, volume of muscle tissue and they all experience hypertrophy on an individual level so they all experience tension somewhat individually and they subsequently grow in response to that mechanical tension which comes from resistance training so the basic physiology of hypertrophy um can be summarized in probably four different on four different levels um there's obviously genetic processes right at the bottom that kickstart uh all the chemical signaling cascades that are required for a cell to get larger so it all starts on the level of the genes and that highlights the importance of you know genetic variability between individuals and how that can lead to variation in one's potential to build muscle it really all does start there um after that we have uh we, we need a stimulus right so stimulus comes comes after that and the stimulus mainly is mechanical tension uh again mechanical tension coming from uh resistance training that's referring to the internal force that each of those muscle fibers are producing in response to the external load. So we're trying to overcome an external load. Muscle fibers have to produce force. And so tension is transmitted across the muscle fibers. And that is the stimulus on a, on a very basic level. And that can be modulated with specific training variables. And that stimulus has, has a molecular and uh, eventually a cellular effect and what i mean by this is the stimulus affects the cells physiology on a molecular level and this leads to increases in muscle protein synthesis uh that's a, a term that we generally um here um, get used in these discussions and, and that term is referring to an increase in the amount of amino acids being converted or built up or synthesized into proteins and skeletal muscle contractile tissue and it's contractile tissue because it's made up of proteins that are capable of contracting and when we combine that resistance training stimulus with sufficient 
protein ingestion and obviously sufficient amino acids as a function of that we achieve enough muscle protein synthesis over time uh, to lead to those cellular changes that i mentioned earlier and the cellular changes would be the cell actually getting larger so um, it can get longer the cell muscle cells can get longer and as a function of that they they there's more volume right so they are kind of getting bigger because they're getting longer but they can also get wider and thicker as well so that's that's the last step that would be the cellular uh, changes and they would only take place if if muscle protein synthesis is exceeding muscle protein breakdown over time so that's the the key point the key point is that resistance training combined with amino acid ingestion leads to muscle protein synthesis um upregulation but that has to be sufficient enough and 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 great enough uh, over time to exceed the corresponding breakdown that also occurs in between protein feedings and 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 so on so that's that's what hypertrophy is that's the basic physiology behind it and uh, you know for um our purposes i think that'll that'll set up the conversation well yeah perfect and i think there's a number of things that we need to circle back in terms of I guess the tension stimulus, because that is the primary factor that we can control. Our genetics are somewhat dictated. And then obviously nutrition comes into play, which Mackenzie will uh, turn to you now. So Man obviously mentioned amino acids and protein intake. What are the big rocks for nutrition when it comes to muscle growth? Do you want to lay the law there? Absolutely. And first thing I'll say is that I'm an expert in skeletal muscle hypertrophy as you can see um so more than well qualified to discuss this topic clearly um so what are we talking about nutrition big rocks so we want to create a positive net protein balance that's where muscle protein synthesis exceeds muscle protein breakdown now as mark discussed there are various inputs that contribute to that but from a nutrition perspective the primary one is going to be amino acid ingestion in other words eating protein right um we also have a contributing factor from other variables in particular calorie intake or energy balance now and this is the idea of okay when we want to gain muscle we want to be eating a, an appropriate amount of protein uh, and if we really want to hone in on protein nutrition best practice we also want to be distributing that across our waking hour uh in a certain way that you know maximizes muscle protein synthetic rate or much protein synthesis rather across the day um in terms of the caloric surplus thing as i mentioned or alluded to before this is something that also drives muscle protein synthesis but whether it's needed to create a net positive protein balance where that muscle protein synthesis exceeds breakdown over a period of time is something that is context dependent it's a bit of an it depends thing and i am not on board i what i'll say is that the idea of you must be in a calorie surplus to gain muscle as a blanket statement is not evidence-based at least in my view all right marty over to you obviously yeah there's a few things to unpack there and I would say i agree that it is context dependent and there's obviously situations such as if you have a rank beginner who's training an energy surplus is probably not necessary for them to build muscle just like oftentimes with obese uh individuals or uh, people returning from a layoff or our friends on mexican supplements so there are certainly situations where muscle growth can occur 
independent of an energy surplus. Marta, is there anything that you want to add to Max's statements? Uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I think there's a difference between what is optimal and what is going to get the job done effectively, effectively enough for most of our clients. So yes, a calorie surplus, as a, as, a, as a blanket statement, a calorie surplus is required for muscle hypertrophy is we know that's that's not that's not an accurate claim. Uh, there there is a lot of research that shows hypertrophy can occur uh, in an energy deficit and um, in in certain situations, as you alluded to, Jacob. Uh, but as an individual gets more advanced, I think that the need for a calorie surplus probably starts to increase, especially if they want to get as much possible out of their training experience. And that's where, you know, working with clients and understanding the the uh, that, that intricate balance between what's theoretically optimal, what's re- realistically achievable, understanding how to work within that balance is really important. Some clients don't want to maximize muscle hypertrophy. And so they may not need to be in, in a surplus uh, for extended periods. But if we're speaking about physique athletes, aspiring bodybuilders, for example, the need for a calorie surplus um, in that demographic is probably going to increase. Uh, the next question uh, generally uh, is, well, how how large does the calorie surplus need to be? So maybe that's that's the next step we can take. Um, Mackenzie, did you want to touch on on that? If someone if someone did want to to maximize muscle growth, um, how how many calories do they need to eat in surplus? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, and definitely going to echo what you say is uh, once you sort of edge into more of that intermediate, advanced training training age and experience, um, the sensitivity of um, training and protein nutrition alone might not be enough to create that net uh, positive protein balance over time. And that's when the calorie surplus is that needed boost to move you into that range consistently. Another aspect though, actually, that I did forget to mention, and I do apologize, is the effect of nutrition on training performance. And as we've spoken about already, training performance or training is the stimulus to the adaptation. Okay, it's the thing that initiates what we want, which is the muscle growth. So if nutrition is supporting training performance or nutrition can play a role in boosting training performance, so you can really maximize that stimulus and therefore maximize the adaptation. So back to what you were saying there, Mato, about um, how much of a calorie surplus should we be in? Now, this one is a bit difficult. There's actually quite a lot of moving targets. When we think about the energy in muscle, we think logically, okay, well, you know, we've got to get that energy from somewhere. Therefore, we need to be we need to get that from food. That is true, but at the same time, we do have stored energy within our bodies that we can tap into if we need. Uh, but we also have other reasons beyond that why we would want additional calories. And this can include things such as increased energy expenditure because we're training. Uh, it can be increased non-exercise activity. It can be just an increase in the thermic effect of feeding, for example. So uh, through the process of um, synthesizing new muscle tissue uh, or building muscle, however you want to say it, you know, that comes at an energy cost as well, that actual process. And then also digesting, absorbing, and just kind of managing the food that we eat. 
So there's numerous reasons why we would want to eat more food if the goal was to maximize muscle growth. Now, the size of that surplus is a tricky one for those reasons, but also because it seems that there is a bit of a sweet spot where more calories and therefore more weight gain does not equal more muscle gain, but it incrementally equals more uh, relative fat gain. So if we, let's lay out, say, a nine-month phase, we're going to go for muscle growth. We want to do everything we can. We're going to dot our I's across our T's. Okay, we're going to be in a surplus. Now, there is a point where additional calories does not give you more muscle, and you're just going to, frankly, get fatter. Okay, and this is undesirable for numerous reasons, body composition, performance, uh, but also health as well. Um, so the actual size of that surplus is going to be individual. Um, I've heard things like, you know, any amount of surplus that gains you 1% to 2% of body weight per month for your typically more advanced level lifters um, is the way to go. And the size of that surplus is going to vary. Um, other research suggests anywhere from around 360 to 480 calories per day or kilocalories per day in excess of maintenance. Um, it's all a little bit questionable. And I think the best way to do it from my perspective is to assess body weight trends over time, look at other factors such as training performance, and then make a, a pragmatic informed decision as to where the calories should be increased, stay, uh, re um, remain constant or uh, reduced down if excessive body fat is being gained. Yeah, that, that pretty much echoes most of my thoughts on that. The recommendation we give at JPS is around 300, 500 calorie surplus, which Mackenzie, that was uh, pretty much in line with what you said there. And anywhere from like 0.5 to 2% of body weight gain per month, um, obviously depending on how lean the individual is to begin with and their uh, potential for muscle growth at that point in time. Amato, anything that you want to add to that? Yeah, I think just highlighting the importance of uh, what Mackenzie said uh, towards the end of his um, statement there where he said it's probably a good idea to to work with an individual and track body weight changes over time and, and use those percentages instead of just using a, a given number and attaching yourself to that. Uh, we know that people will compensate or off uh, upon overeating. We know that people can offset you know, those calories by um experiencing an increase in their total daily energy expenditure and that varies across individuals so you know if if all, all three of us ate 500 calories in excess of our maintenance uh you know in in a week or two that 500 calorie surplus would maybe no longer be a 500 calorie surplus for me but it could be for you guys it, it's going to change uh as the days and the weeks go by and as the the body's physiology adapt so yeah i think in practice it's all well and good to give it's all well and good to give recommendations in theory based on research but in practice monitoring an individual's weight gain closely and then making adaptive changes um based on you know percentage um uh, rate of gain you know each month or whatever it may be is is important yeah and that ties in a couple of really uh important points to discuss so we've obviously looked at the nutrition the rate of weight gain and the size of the surplus to sort of optimize uh, hypertrophy. But one of the key factors there, uh, as we've mentioned, is training performance. So let's turn to, I guess, training. Mackenzie, you're going to have to just, you know, you can mute yourself as well as blank your screen for the next 20 minutes while me and Martin discuss this. Um, I'm, I'm joking, Mackenzie, don't get upset. Um, <laughs> but training is very important because the stimulus is what drives hypertrophy. So 
Uh, we obviously know that there are a number of training variables. Well, we hope the listeners of the portal know what the variables are. We've got volume, frequency, intensity, exercise selection, rest periods, uh, and tempo. Now, these all have a role in muscle growth, but some are a little bit more important when it comes to providing uh, the muscle with the tension stimulus. Marto, so do you want to discuss these variables as they relate to uh, mechanical tension? Yeah, so like you said, they all play a role. Um, so they all need to be considered in the overall program design, but there are definitely some that likely have a larger influence on the mechanical tension stimulus than others. So if we if we start from the top, I think when writing a program, it's it's usually a good idea to base decisions off the exercises that you're prescribing because that's going to make up the the structure the theme of the program so the exercise will influence muscle groups being trained and the way the tension is being directed across the musculature and you know whenever you're, you're discussing exercise selection exercise execution comes along with that because whenever we prescribe exercise to clients and coach clients and whenever we perform exercise ourselves you know it's a good idea to to be trying to implement a a quote-unquote good technique right what is a good technique that's probably a discussion for another day but there's 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 certain factors that we can uh look out for in an individual's technique that would make it good for hypertrophy you know the range of motion um the whether or not the the exercise the biomechanics of the exercise suit the individual um the stability demands of an exercise um your ability to just practically track the progression of the exercise from week to week and to load it uh you know heavier and heavier potentially from week to week as well so there's a few things going on there but that's where we start we start with with the exercise because like I said, that's influencing the way the tension is being directed across the musculature and the way the exercise is executed um, is obviously of um, primary importance there as well. Now, once you've selected you know, your, your exercises for a given training program, you're then going to move on to volume allocation, right? How, how, how much volume, how much of a dose do I want to be providing the client here or myself or whoever you're, you're programming uh, for? So the way I like to think about it is systematically. We've got the exercise, then we choose the amount of volume that we're going to allocate to that given exercise. That's going to dictate our total training dose. And when I say volume, I'm using the term um um, I'm trying. I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm thinking of volume as set volume. So the number of sets that are being performed for a given muscle group per week. That's the dose of of the stimulus, and then you're going to decide. Well, how hard should I actually be pushing these sets, right? And this is where, um, this is where it's important to realize that mechanical tension, right? It's obviously being influenced by the way the exercise is being executed, but it's also being influenced by the the magnitude of tension that is being experienced per repetition and also the the duration of that tension right so how many reps are actually being performed now on a very basic level if you're using a heavier load and you're lifting a heavier load per repetition the magnitude of that tension stimulus is going to be higher 
And we have some reason to believe that as, as, as we get closer to the end of the set, as a function of more motor unit recruitment, the magnitude of tension may also be higher. So we have to consider that. And proximity to failure clearly plays a large role in, in influencing the magnitude of tension. So you know, with a given load, um, pushing closer to failure is likely going to increase um, mechanical tension. Um, whether or not that's linear is uh, questionable. And we have to think about the carry-on effects of that too. But we've got the magnitude of tension, which is being influenced by the load lifted, proximity to failure, and then the volume, right? So set volume, uh, that's going to influence the total dose of tension. So the total duration of tension that we experience across a workout. So really at this point, you can see how it's almost a balancing act. Um, you know, more volume, right? For a given muscle group means you probably don't have to push as close to failure, uh, whether or not that's, you know, practically the best approach for some clients, um, is questionable. Some clients maybe yes, others, others may be better off with a lower volume, closer proximity to failure approach. Um, the end result, you know, might be similar if it's executed quite well. Um, we don't really know uh, exactly how that would play out. Um, I think in, in most cases, starting off with a lower volume approach, pushing closer to failure works really well. And then you can increase volume over time on an as needs basis. And then, you know, finally you've got, well, frequency. So how often am I going to expose the musculature to the tension stimulus? Again, a higher volume approach may need slightly more frequency because Within a session, it's likely a good idea to have a cap on the amount of volume you're you're completing. So, um, you know, up to ten sets probably okay. Beyond ten sets for a given muscle group in a in a certain session, starting to maybe become a little detrimental to the overall tension stimulus. So, something to be keeping in mind there. But that's obviously individual dependent because we all experience fatigue differently, and uh, that needs to be considered because what we're trying to do here really is we're trying to maximize the stimulus of training whilst limiting the fatigue costs because the fatigue itself can directly influence a muscle's ability to produce force and therefore the mechanical tension that it also experiences. So again, it's it's that balancing act. It's using these variables to create a program that provides a sufficient stimulus. So do we have enough volume? Are we pushing close enough to failure? Are we selecting the right exercises for our clients and they are they being performed well spreading that out you know somewhat evenly across the week uh, for the most part that's a, a good recommendation and then finding ways to limit uh fatigue uh by you know making sure uh, individuals are resting sufficiently between sets between workouts making sure volume uh allocations aren't exceeding their recovery capacity etc so hopefully that gives a, a broad overview of of how the training variables may may influence the tension stimulus. Yeah, it does. And I think an important note there is, although the exercise selection is important for muscle growth, hypertrophy it can occur independent of the exercise mm. performed. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people build muscle riding a bike, running, doing all sorts of activities because they're producing force. And I guess that's a critical point to understand because once you understand that hypertrophy is all about the tension stimulus and they're making sure you're getting the right dose and magnitude you can see why resistance training is probably the best option for providing the muscles with that tension and then why the volume and exercise become important for then how much and where we're putting that tension 
Um, so that's a really good foundation for that. And I guess the next point of discussion I wanted to bring up as this is a very general roundtable is how we measure muscle growth. So if we know for nutrition, we need a surplus, sufficient amino acids and proteins split up over the day. We need to look at the training variables. How do we measure muscle growth and know that we are actually getting more jacked? Because that's one of the biggest challenges I see a lot of people face because it is a very forgiving adaptation and very hard to measure. It's not like a one rep max uh, on a squat where you know you've gotten stronger or not. Um, it's quite difficult to assess uh, muscle growth practically and uh, you know inexpensively anyway. So Mackenzie, do you want to kick us off for how we measure muscle growth uh, in a pragmatic sense? Yeah, it's a very difficult thing um, because even the gold standard standard ways of measuring muscle mass or lean mass at least uh, directly have a, a level of measurement error. And muscle growth is such a slow incremental thing over a, a span of time that it might even be less than that measurement error of these gold standard uh, measurement techniques. So we might be thought to believe that we haven't gained any muscle or even lost muscle when we have actually in reality gained muscle tissue, but due to the measurement error where we've, we've been misled here. And that's, again, if we're using these gold standard te techniques, uh, which can be expensive, they can be annoying and practical. So how do we measure, measure muscle growth then? Now, I mean, I'm not a coach in a gym. I don't write training programs. I look at it from a nutrition perspective. Um, I typically look at body weight trends over time, um, but I will also consider things like training performance um, because I think that improvements in training performance can be a pretty solid indicator of whether muscle has been uh, muscle mass has increased or not. And obviously, there is a skill acquisition component, uh, among other things, that might result in improvements in performance independent to muscle growth. But there is also uh, increased muscle size. Um, we're going to see increased performance. And again, we could open a debate on, you know, what's the chicken and egg situation here, which comes first. I'm not going to get into that. All I'm going to say is that if I'm looking at a client, I'm going to consider these things first and foremost. But other um, factors to consider are, Honestly, how they're feeling, um, their appetite, I think, plays a role. Things like sleep and energy levels can play a role. Like if they don't have, uh, if their sleep is good, um, but their energy levels, you know, their perception of energy is is not great, then this is an indication of maybe they need more food. Um, so it's really a lot of different things, but I would say the crux of it is trying to take a pragmatic conclusion or applying pragmatism to the two key factors being training performance and body weight trends over time. They're the first things that I would personally probably look at. Yeah, awesome. Mata, over to you. Yeah, I, th I think that was a great practical uh, thought process. I think the one thing we can add on top of that is visual progress photos. Uh, you know, beyond beyond the visual progress shots, the the body weight measurements and maybe circumference measurements that come along with that, and then performance metrics uh, in the gym in, on the gym floor. There's really not much more you can do. Like uh, Mackenzie said, there are other means of measuring lean mass. You know, maybe an individual can get a DEXA scan, but Mackenzie also mentioned there are limitations to that. Um, I'm not opposed to clients getting DEXA scans, but as long as they understand the limitations, uh, that's that's. Uh, 
you know, that's, that's the main thing. Um, when it comes to performance, I think it's worthwhile diving a bit deeper into that. So, you know, what, what type of increases in performance are actually going to lead to, to hypertrophy is an increased one RM going to lead to more hypertrophy, you know, maybe not as much as an individual being able to do, uh, you know, three sets of 10 with a really heavy load and hitting what we might call a, a volume PB. Uh, so this comes down to tracking volume load, uh, probably a good idea to measure volume load, which is sets times reps times load in, in a program and, and track it over time for a given exercise. Um, isolation exercises are, are really good because they're obviously very directed and there's less noise. So there's less uh, tissue contributing to the to the lift, uh, which makes you know muscle growth inferences probably a bit more accurate. So if we're also making less inferences technical as well. less yeah, technical like as well. So so you know I think a volume load measurement over time for most exercises, uh, if it's over a long time span, you know we're talking you know six to, to twelve months here, uh, is a good indication that something is happening and that muscle is being built. If the other uh, factors we discuss are also trending in the right direction. So if we have body weight slowly creeping up, circumference measurements may be increasing and visual photos also looking quite positive. Uh, it's just that on some exercises like isolation exercises, um, the, the there may be more of a direct kind of influence on, on hypertrophy. Uh, so Volume load over time, uh, that's a little bit different to just measuring increases in set volume, for example. So probably an important distinction to be made. Uh, you know, it, it increases in volume load over time on a given exercise are due to some adaptations that have taken place. For our context today, we're assuming that some of those adaptations have been morphological. So they've come from hypertrophy. Yes, there may be some neural adaptations there too. Um, probably a combination of both, uh, which is why we can make that that inference in the long run. But adding sets, you know, from week to week uh, or within a session, that that is an increase in volume, but it's an acute increase in volume. So it's a little different to experiencing somewhat of organ an organic increase in volume load due to prior adaptations, right? So due to getting bigger and and stronger. So something to keep in mind there when trying to assess hypertrophy via performance uh and like i said if you've if you've got that heading in the right direction you know across most exercises in a program over time and body weight slowly increasing along with circumference measures and visual shots are looking good then you know you're probably building muscle and you've got to trust somewhat trust in your abilities as a coach your ability to write a, a good training program and uh you know as long as the, the client is adhering and executing well uh, that's the most important thing really then yeah you, you'd be on the right track yeah and that's something that we um we discuss a lot at uh our seminars and most of our conversations relating to muscle growth is the distinction between acute volume versus like chronic volume and the two lenses you need to look at volume through so set volume if you're adding sets which a lot of people have uh, become really hell bent on you know how many sets should i do oh uh, if i'm you know not growing do i add more sets um that's a form of progression that's just doing more work that's not actually um you know measuring muscle growth if your set volume is going up you're obviously increasing your volume load and that's artificially uh increasing your volume load in the sense that it's not because you've gotten bigger or stronger 
it's because you're doing more work. And the same goes for proximity to failure. If you're just training closer to failure and harder and harder, um, you are by virtue of training closer to failure, just training harder. And because you're doing more reps, your volume load goes up. Um, but if you keep your proximity to failure relatively constant, your set volume within a you know very similar range, uh, and you're comparing your volume load for a given exercise from mesocycle to mesocycle, you're comparing apples to apples. And by doing that, you're actually able to observe if progressive overload has occurred. And this is how we need to look at progressive overload for hypertrophy, very different to strength. For strength, it's am I adding weight to the bar? But for hypertrophy, it's a, the combination of am I adding weight to the bar? Am I adding reps? And am I able to do a sufficient amount of work at a sufficient proximity to failure and still keep improving with that amount of work? And if so, that's a really good sign uh, as a training proxy for hypertrophy combined with all those other things. And I think the reason why we have so many different variables to assess hypertrophy is because there is no uh, one measure that we can use uh, practically to measure it. So we have to what's called triangulate. So bear, bring about multiple different measurement techniques uh, on the phenomena of muscle growth to help us point in the direction of are we gaining muscle or not? Mackenzie, I saw you had your hand up before. Is there anything you wanted to add there while you put your lip balm on? <laughs> Yeah, there is just one thing that I wanted to add to this. Um, Your lips look very yeah. shiny now. Give us, give us a kiss. <laughs> they're very, they're very moisturized. Mm, <laughs> you know, very nice and moisturized now. Yeah, mate, this cold, uh, this cold Euro wind is wreaking havoc on me. I tell you what. Um, <laughs> so, back to the introduction of visualized uh, means of assessing progress. So, what are we talking about here? Progress photos. Now, I personally think that there are some risks and shortcomings of doing this. Now, the first thing I'll say is I want to preface what I'm about saying, saying I don't work with bodybuilders. The focus is not an appearance thing. You're not scored on how you look. Um, almost always when I work with someone who's trying to gain muscle, it's for a performance outcome. Okay. Now, the, the risks of taking progress photos uh, the first one is that it emphasizes appearance outcomes and from a psychological perspective, uh, body image, also the connection between uh, body image and eating behaviors, uh, this can raise some potential uh, issues or that can accumulate over time. Um, the second thing is focusing on how, what your body does as opposed to how it looks. So the function or functional appreciation um, may likely, again, have those be a little bit safer, uh, but also might be more, uh, in my opinion, a better idea for consistency and longevity because you are focusing on something that you can celebrate every single week. Um, if you're seeing progress in the gym, that's something that you can assess quite frequently, whereas uh, visualisation through photos is something that I feel at least you're not really going to see a whole lot of change over shorter time periods. And it's more comparing, say, week one to week 12 or week one to week 20. And that's sort of the time frame you need to see those changes as well. And with that, if we're in a dedicated muscle growth phase, we've already discussed that, you know, once you're beyond sort of that novice phase, you're really looking at wanting a surplus of calories. And when we have a surplus of calories, we do need to accept that there is going to be a, an accumulation of body fat mass. And whilst we're trying to minimize that, this can throw a bit of a spanner in the works among other spanners in the works, like lighting, time of day, all these sort of things that can create a, a, a conclusion by looking at photos that can be misleading. 
or you know you, you've put on a little you've put on muscle but you've also put on a little bit of fat so in those photos do you look like you have gotten more jacked and i think that is uh, an issue that can be tricky to navigate, even if you have that pragmatic approach, even if you have that really logical uh, coach in your ear saying, no, 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 think about this. If you're training performance, you're scaling weight, like, you know, this is, it's fine. Don't worry about the photos. I think it's really easy for those thoughts and feelings to play with your head and get you down and mess with your consistency. So for that reason, um, I'm very hesitant to use visual means of assessing progress. In fact, I will say that I can't remember the last time that I got a client to take progress in photos. Uh, but again, we must understand that the clients that I work with are not bodybuilders. They're not training for, they're not going to be scored on how they look. So I guess it's a different kettle of fish. I just wanted to provide that perspective. That's all. Yeah, no, I totally appreciate that. I'll just have one question or a bottle to that. Obviously, we get people to track their scale weight. And I think that can have a very similar effect to visual photos. Uh, do you not think that it is also a good idea if somebody's experiencing, um, you know, some of these you know, potential issues psychologically with taking progress photos that we should also teach them how to understand those progress photos and to appreciate their body at all certain, um, you know, looks and appearances, just like we do when the scale goes up and try to get them to be an emotionally robust individual that doesn't, um, experience, you know, all of these, uh, negative emotion when they step on a scale or see a visual photo of themselves. Yeah, I 100% think that that is a really valid point. And in a lot of ways, we have the same risks where we decide to monitor body weight uh, as the po in comparison to when we decide to monitor visual change. Um, but one thing that I've learned over time is that when it comes to nutrition, we don't have solutions. We have trade-offs. Okay. Now we look at the risk of someone. We look at, you know, what's their current uh, relationship with food? Like what's, what are the, what signs are we getting around body image? You know, given where this person, person is currently, is it kind of like weighing themselves and taking photos? Either one. So we're just going to put them in the same sort of basket here. Is that something that is a really risky thing or do we think the pros outweigh the cons? And I personally think that often in the, the setting of my clients not being bodybuilders not being assessed on appearance i think there is more pros to scale weight monitoring as opposed to image monitoring uh, or like progress photo monitoring the level of risk associated with either one might be somewhat similar but like i said i think there is a, a larger reward profile on the scale weight trend data uh, as opposed to, to the visual cues there Absolutely. I, I would agree with uh, your um, point that 100% scale weight tells you a lot more in terms of um, the muscle gaining process than the visuals because the visuals are influenced by so many things. It's very um, subjective. There's a lot less uh, quantitative, I guess, assessment there. So I agree with that. Um, yeah, great point. Uh, Marta, anything that you want to add to uh, the conversation? Yeah, I think this just emphasizes the importance of understanding that the number of variables you choose to track needs to be dependent on the client and tracking more variables isn't always better. And I think that this can be an issue uh, when, you know, coaches or trainers may have a certain battery of, you know, assessments that they take with new clients. So they got body weight, you know, um, visual shots at conference and so on. 
and they kind of employ that same battery of assessments with with all their clients. So, you know, everyone who comes on board has to take photos, has to weigh in, um, and they're not, you know, thinking um, logically about which variables or which assessments uh, are best for this individual client based on their, you know, certain context, um, their, you know, history, et cetera. Like uh, Mackenzie said, basically every decision you make will come with a trade-off. And this is why it's important to, you know, sit down and make sure that the variables you're tracking with your clients um, are individualized and you're not tracking more than necessary to get the information that you need to make good decisions that keep moving your client forward. Yeah, I just think also, go back. Sorry, I was just going to say that's that's a fantastic point there, Martin. Is just considering what information do you want, uh, and rather than adopting a throw the kitchen sink at it, I think even the effort cost associated with tracking a lot of things is something that can be a barrier to adherence. So it's like, oh, bro, I want you to track your heart rate. I want you to track your, you know, skin temperature in the morning. And then I want you to track this and this and all these different things. Like you're just everything under the sun. It's like, okay, what is the benefit to effort cost? Not even risk. I think when it comes to why we shouldn't track something, it's not just about risk. And I feel like at this point, we've largely looked at risk, but it's also like, it's a freaking mission and it can distract from things that are more important. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of like, uh, maybe we don't want to call it a minimalistic approach, but just something that is like focusing on those bang for buck things first and foremost, those big rocks, um, I think is going to be, give you the best effort cost to reward profile. Absolutely. I Thank think you. if we look at the big rocks, it would certainly be scale weight gain over time, as well as training performance increasing in volume load, um, with other measurements being uh, secondary, uh, to that. I'll add that. I use visuals differently to, I guess, how they've been described here. I get visuals to compare um, when, or retrospectively against visuals from a similar phase or at a similar body weight after we've had multiple massing and cutting phases. So what I mean by that is if somebody is, say, 80 kilos and then they do six months of gaining, three months of dieting down, next time they're at 80 kilos, I'll look at 80 kilos now to how they were 80 kilos nine months ago. And if muscle has been built, there will be significant differences or they should um, be leaner at 80 kilos this time uh, around. So I like to compare uh, body weights across time as opposed to just looking at those visuals um, independent of and look and comparing them week to week, if that makes sense. So I'll never get somebody in, say, a massing phase, take visuals weekly or monthly and go, cool, what are we looking like now? It's more so to compare in future. Are you looking better at this body weight over time? Are you looking better at heavier body weights over time? Because if so, that's a really good sign that you've built muscle. What do you reckon of that, Mac? I reckon that's a doozy way of doing it um, because you're eliminating a lot of the noise. You're taking kind of like, you know, it's hard to compare from the start of a mass phase when you've just come off like, a shredder bro a shredder bro phase it's hard to compare that to you know 12 months later when you're at the peak of your bulk you know it's it's hard to draw a visual conclusion and those thoughts and feelings are going to be you know running pretty hot um so i think that approach you take looking at over sort of trying to yeah cut out the noise 
look at uh, face-to-face, like-for-like situations, I think has a lot more applicability. Um, in the lot, like that's more of a long-term thing, I think. So you're doing it that way. I can see the purpose behind it. I'm just like, you know, looking at last week's progress photo and looking at it from seven days later, I think it's kind of like in a lot of settings, at least with the clients that I work, I, I just don't see any any reward to doing absolutely. that. It's absolutely something you only use, um, you know, if you're in a serious fat loss phase with someone who's probably on the very uh, lean side of things where scale weight fluctuations are going to um, you know, be running rampant. You won't um, be able to have good data there. But, yes, totally agree on that. Guys, is there anything else uh, that you want to mention as we round up this roundtable? Marta, anything you want to conclude with when it comes to hypertrophy? Uh, not really. I'd like to hand over to, to Mac just quickly. So speak to us a little bit more about how nutrition so we know training performance you know drives or training itself drives the stimulus for hypertrophy so speak to us a bit about how nutrition can augment the our training performance and potentially then influence you know the level of stimulus that that we can achieve yeah i'll I'll just try and touch on this as concisely as possible so i think there's two arms to this we have the role of nutrition in the muscle protein synthesis side of things so you know training is going to enhance the level of muscle protein synthesis and promote that positive protein balance but then you know protein nutrition and to a lesser degree but still a very uh, strong degree um, other nutrition factors in particular uh, energy balance and calorie intake okay but i think like i said before uh training performance is influenced by nutrition so it's almost like there's a a, a circle here like a, a a cycle here and and that is in both ways or in two ways we have the effect of nutrition more acutely or maybe less acutely but more talking about you know having fuel for a productive training session that's really what i'm getting at here and that's a product of overall calories so just the calorie intake over time then more acutely we're looking at carbohydrates in the pre-exercise window uh we're also looking at hydration because that affects performance as well uh but then we've got the other things like uh caffeine and also comfort you know if you're guts are frankly not in a good position in your training session that's going to affect performance and as a product of that it's going to affect the training adaptation but i think there's also another part of the role of nutrition in exercise performance which is the recovery side of things if your nutrition is set up in a way where you can recover better and reduce the amount of time needed to you know because training is like a it it impairs performance because you are you know placing a stress or you're damaging in little quotations uh the body and then nutrition plays a role among other things in bringing you back up to baseline so you can perform your best now if you can reduce that time frame it means that you can fit more productive training in less time and then when we think about the training stimulus you know more productive training greater stimulus and a greater ability to adapt from that stimulus and recover from it and be better we're going to see an enhanced training adaptation so long story short nutrition 
not just about fueling for a fantastic, you know, a fueled up session where you're just, you know, hitting, you just got so much energy, you're raring to go, you feel like you've got plenty of fuel on board to perform, but also reducing or minimizing that recovery time so you can fit more productive training in a shorter window and or even extend the duration of your training cycles and squeeze more volume out of them before having to drop down and do some kind of deload or start a new phase, what have you. Yeah, I like that. Great uh, summary, Mac. Very good. All right, guys. Well, that was a roundtable for hypertrophy. Uh, I hope you guys learned a thing or two. And be sure to check out the lectures, the Q&A, and the articles for more. Mackenzie and Martin, thank you very much for your time. And we'll see you all next time. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thank you, gents. Thank you, everyone.